listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the life of Christ and the Gospel of Luke. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. Two major motivators in life. One of them wreaks havoc, the other one builds beauty. And you have to make a decision, I have to make a decision, which one is going to dominate your life? Which one will dominate my life? Because whatever you decide about those two motivators, whichever one you decide will dominate your life will demolish the other. They cannot mutually exist. Life is about having one dominate and demolish the other. And what you decide, what I decide in the course of everyday living about those two motivators, which one will dominate, which one will demolish the other, what you decide about those motivators will determine the quality of your life. Not only will it affect the quality of your life, it will directly impact the glory of God. Two major motivators in all of life. One wreaks havoc, the other one builds beauty, and you need to decide which one of those motivators is going to dominate your life. Turn with me to Luke chapter 22. In our Father's word, Luke 22, verse one, we'll begin right there with the beginning. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him, Jesus, to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas Iscariot, who was of the number of the 12, one of the 12 disciples, and he went away and conferred with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Look at verse six. So he consented, Judas consented and sought an opportunity to betray, to hand him over to them in the absence of a crowd. This helps us understand that Jesus had an unprecedented impact in light of the other people who lived, who walked, who talked, who teached, who preached. Jesus had an unprecedented impact upon the people because Judas, along with the chief priests and the officers, the scribes, they are all doing things in an underhanded way. They're all doing things in a secretive kind of way, not on the up and up, out in the open. For instance, when we get to the part where it talks about Jesus appearing before the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish ruling council, the Jewish court of law, it's no coincidence that they held that at night with a majority of the members of the Sanhedrin being absent. Why would they do that if they knew that it was a slam dunk to get a conviction against Jesus? They were strictly forbidden from holding a court 
at nighttime. And they were forbidden from trying to hold a meeting unless the full number of the Sanhedrin were present. So the reason why they held it at night without having all of the members of the Sanhedrin there is because they knew, they knew, they knew. If you read the scriptures, it's all over the place. Jesus had an unprecedented impact upon the people of his day. That's why Judas and the chief priests and the officials of the temple and the scribes were doing this apart from the crowds. Every place Jesus went, people were following. They saw what he did with the miracles. They heard what he said with his teachings and how he was continually pointing people to himself. And he taught as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. And here in these six verses of Luke 22, they're just crammed with so much rich information that help us understand the absolute havoc of a bad, unhealthy motivator by contrast to the beauty that is built up by the only thing that should motivate every decision of your life. And we will get there in just a moment. But let's first of all talk about the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the feast or the festival of Passover. Verse one, now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. Now, there was a time, as we're going to look at in just a moment, at your favorite book in the Old Testament, there was a time when these were considered two separate feasts, two separate festivals. The feast or the festival of unleavened bread and the feast or the festival of Passover. But here, as we can see, by the time Jesus is on the scene, these two are referred to as one in the same. The feast of unleavened bread, which is called the Passover. Now, your favorite book in the Old Testament. It's not the book of Palms. It's not the book of first hesitations or second hesitations. I'm not being disrespectful by saying that. I just understand that we're all at different places in terms of our understanding of the different books in the Bible. First Chronicles, Second Chronicles, First Kings, Second Kings, you know, First Samuel, Second Samuel. And so you might not be familiar with all the different books of the Bible, just like you might not be familiar with this particular book, the book of Leviticus. And there's a lot to be said in the book of Leviticus about the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast or the Festival of Passover. Turn with me to Leviticus chapter 23. A lot of times when we read the scriptures, the things that seem to mystify us actually end up demystifying portions of scripture. And this is a perfect example. See, when we read in Luke 22 about the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is called the Passover, all we need to do is go back to the book of Leviticus and in a moment to the book of Exodus to understand what was involved and where they come from, where these feasts and festivals come from, and what is their significance? What is the significance of the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread coming up as Luke mentions? What is the significance of that? Well, by the time we're done, 
You're going to understand by looking at your favorite book, Leviticus, by looking at your other favorite book, Exodus. Then when we turn to the book of Luke in chapter 22, you'll understand the significance of unleavened bread and Passover as a Gentile, seeing it through the eyes of the Old Testament. In Leviticus chapter 23, verse one, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, these are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations, holy gatherings. They are my appointed feasts. And if we read the rest of Leviticus 23, we understand that there are seven feasts. There's the Passover, there's the Feast of Unleavened Bread, there's the Feast of First Fruits, there's the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost, there's the Feast of Trumpets, there's the Day of Atonement, which is considered a feast or a festival, and the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. So here, the scripture is being laid out. We're being introduced very clearly to these. In verse three, six days shall work be done. But on the seventh day is a Sabbath, a solemn rest, a holy gathering, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. And on the 15th day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant name of God, the name that God revealed to Moses when Moses was on Mount Sinai and Moses said, whom shall I say sent me? And he said, the Lord said, tell them I am has sent you. I am sent you, which sounds like Yahweh, okay? That's the covenant personal name of God. And you see how these are intertwined together. The Passover is being discussed and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, but you shall present a food offering to the Lord for seven days. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. So there we have laid out at that time Passover and unleavened bread, considered two separate feasts and festivals. By the time we get to Luke 22, they were merged together and referred to as the same thing. And you can understand why now, because one takes place within the other. Does that make sense? Okay. Well, then when we get to Exodus chapter 12, this is the introduction of the Passover, an introduction of the place of unleavened bread and what it means, what the significance is of unleavened bread and the Passover. While the Jewish people were being held captive in slavery and bondage by the Egyptians, God moved, God spoke to his people through his servant Moses and reveals that he's going to deliver his people. And he's going to use object lessons to help his people understand a few things about his nature, a few things about his character, a few things about our character, and a few things about our nature. And here it is in Exodus chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb 
according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish a male a year old. You shall take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread. See the unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn because it's a significant sacrifice. It is given to the Lord. In this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. By the way, the 10 plagues that we see in the book of Exodus, each one of them is a statement by God, a power encounter by Almighty God against each one of the Egyptian gods. God is demonstrating there is no God before me. I am the living and true God. All of your Egyptian gods are not really gods at all. The Egyptians worship the gnat. And so God had a plague of gnats. The Egyptians worshiped the Nile, and God turned the Nile blood red into blood. The Egyptians worshiped the frog, and so God sent the plague of frogs. Every single one of the plagues that is brought against Pharaoh, that is brought against the Egyptians, is a movement of God to demonstrate his superiority over each of the gods of Egypt. Bring them all on. All of them together are no match for the living and true God. The God of Israel, the God of the Jewish people, the God of Christians is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And there is nobody above him. So in verse 13 of chapter 12 of Exodus, the blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses for if anyone eats what is leavened, that's yeast, okay? If anyone eats what has yeast in it from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day, you shall hold a holy assembly. It means a set-apart assembly. 
And on the seventh day, a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. On this very day, I brought your hosts or your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven, no yeast is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. God showing no, he's not a respecter of any persons. He means what he says, says what he means, wants things done exactly the way he says it. Verse 20, you shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. I think I'm beginning to get the picture. Leaven, bad. Unleavened, good. Yeast, bad. Don't eat yeast. Got it? Verse 21, then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Now, what is it that God is trying to communicate to the Jewish people? What is it that he's trying to communicate to the Israelites who have been in bondage for over 400 years at the hand of Pharaoh? Is God really concerned about yeast? Is there something intrinsically evil about yeast? Is there something in particular that God likes the flavor of flatbread better than bread that's been, that's come and, and rise because of yeast? I mean, why so much of an emphasis? No yeast, no leaven, don't eat it. Clean out your house. Make sure if you eat the yeast, you're going to be cut off from among the people. What is it that God is trying to give to his people? He's speaking to them through the feast, through the festival, as in all of the feasts, all of the festivals. God is giving his people object lessons as he points his people to the Messiah, to the Savior, to the significance of now the one that we look back upon, the way they looked forward to Jesus as the Messiah. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 7 and 8, we see these significant verses of Scripture. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Huh, leaven, yeast again, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And who wrote 1 Corinthians? Who wrote 2 Corinthians? Who wrote Romans? Who wrote Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus? Who wrote those books? None other than the chief Pharisee of the day. <gasps> Wait a second, all this time I thought you've been saying that God can't use a Pharisee. The Pharisees keep missing Jesus all along the way. See, it's exactly right. If we stay in our Pharisaic state, God can't use us. 
if Saul, who was in line to be the next president of the theological seminary of his day as the leader of Pharisees, and that's who Saul was while he was on his road to Damascus and had his Damascus road experience. If Saul had stayed Saul as a Pharisee, as a blasphemer, as a violent man, as he explains in one of those books that he wrote about himself, he would not have been moldable and usable for the glory of God. Saul, who was a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a teacher of teachers, in line to be the next leader of the leaders of Israel, is on his way to Damascus with letters from the leaders, the chief priests, the leaders of the nation of Israel. He is on his way to capture and to persecute and to imprison and even to... I'm not going to say this lightly, especially in today's day and age to execute followers of Jesus Christ because Saul was a man who was zealous for God, zealous for the law, familiar with the Old Testament, but he says elsewhere when he writes, I acted in ignorance. See, it's possible to be zealous for the law of God and the teachings of God and to miss God who gives the teaching. It's called legalism. It's called legalism. And here, look at what Paul is doing. This Pharisee of Pharisees, this one who is familiar with the Old Testament is connecting the dots for us, familiar with Leviticus 23. Of course he would have been. Familiar with Exodus chapter 12. Of course he would have been. As a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Jew of Jews, he would have been familiar with all seven of the feasts, all seven of the festivals, all of the sacrifices provided in Leviticus chapter 1. It's no coincidence that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened for Christ. Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. He's connecting the dots. It's not that God was interested in making flatbread and that God was interested in going through all this detail about lambs that are a year old without blemish. It's what those lambs, or I should say, it's who those lambs represented and it's what the unleavened bread represented and still represents it's a life where sin is put in its place as a result of personal saving faith in the Passover lamb Jesus the Messiah And this is why he's saying, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us, therefore, in light of the ultimate sacrifice having come, now that we look back in hindsight, the way the Old Testament saints look forward with foresight, in light of that, let us celebrate the festival. Not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The unleavened bread of sincerity and truth, the fundamental primary characteristic of your life and mine, of every single follower of Jesus Christ, is to be different 
than before we came to know Christ. The teaching that's being presented here is that now that you've given your life to Christ, now that you understand that Christ, the Messiah, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed for us, let's get busy living the kind of life that's in keeping with that sinless sacrifice. Get rid of the yeast. Not that God wants you to go home today and get rid of all the yeast in your house, but that's all you do. It's what the yeast represents, which is sin. A little yeast works through the whole batch. Anybody knows that. It's baking 101. A little bit of yeast, just a pinch, is all you need to make what would otherwise be flatbread rise and grow to the point of which, if you know anything about baking, you got to beat that thing down again, right? you got to beat it down. you got to beat that dough back into submission, depending on the recipe. And that should be your attitude and mine toward sin. Get serious about sin. Our lives are to be characterized by sincerity and truth. Jesus said, anybody on the side of truth listens to me. So if you don't care about truth, if I don't care about truth, we're not listening to Jesus. If we're not living sincere lives, genuine lives, we're not living for Jesus. We've allowed something to dominate our lives, something to come into our lives, something to make our lives out of place. With the fact that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, and we therefore are to live fundamentally different lives. Not with the old yeast of malice and evil. What kind of malice and evil? Any kind of malice and evil. Every kind of malice and evil. And Luke is helping his readers, listeners in his day who would have been listening to the gospel that he wrote being read out loud. He's helping us understand and appreciate today that everything that Jesus taught, everything that is written in his gospel happens in the context that is immersed in the Old Testament, not divorced from the Old Testament. And so he wants us to know the significance of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He's assuming that we understand a thing or two about it. He wants us to not uh, forget the significance of the Passover where God himself passed over the houses of the Jewish people who by faith took the blood of the lamb without blemish who points to Jesus, the Passover lamb who was without sin. And so this idea of Passover is significant for you and for me. It's significant even in that day as this gospel account is unfolding. The idea is that God himself passes over every single one of our sins for no other Reason than personal faith in Jesus and his death on the cross. That's it. Well, that sounds too easy. Someday you might have the opportunity to ask Jesus how easy it was to go through what he went through. For him who knew no sin, to take your sin and mine on himself, and to be ridiculed and span upon and crucified on that cross. And not only that, but to experience separation from his father for the very first time 
You know, when Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane, we'll get there. He's saying, if there's any way possible, daddy. If there's any way possible, daddy. We've never been apart. From the very beginning, we've never had a beginning and we've never been apart. If it's possible for this cup of separation from you to be taken away from me, by all means, Father, could you do that, please? The thought of being apart from my Father, even for an instant, was overwhelming for Jesus to contemplate. That's what Jesus endured for you and for me. What would otherwise be an eternal separation, Jesus endured for you and for me. So the next time, the next time you say it's too easy, contemplate what you really mean by that. What is easy for you and what's easy for me to simply accept the Passover lamb that was crucified for the forgiveness of your sins and mine took everything that Jesus had, including his own life, including his own blood, and separation from God the Father. Salvation is God's gift to you and I, although it doesn't cost us anything. It costs Jesus everything. Remember that the next time you are struggling with forgiveness. I was contemplating the other day when the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, see to it that no root of bitterness grows up among you and defiles many. It's interesting that he says root of bitterness. Why root of bitterness? If every word is inspired by God and therefore reason, why root of bitterness? Because a root is something you don't immediately see. By the time you see the fruit from the root, it's too late. The root's been there for a while. And a root of bitterness is something that's underneath the surface that God sees. And eventually, if you let that root, if you let that root continue, it will grow up and it will bear fruit that will defile many. Find that verse in the book of Hebrews. Look it up for yourself. See to it that no root of bitterness grows up among you and defiles many. It's huge. It's significant. It's massive. There are reasons why, very simple reasons why we will not apologize. And it all comes back to those two major motivators in all of life. The one that wreaks havoc and the other that breeds beauty and that you have to decide which one is going to dominate your life because whichever one you decide upon will demolish the other if we were to stop everything right now and i were to show you some photographs some pictures of my office you'd see some pretty normal things you'd see some pretty average things some pretty ho-hum things. You'd see some photographs in my office. You'd see some pictures that are framed there. And some of them you might say, yeah, that's pretty nice. Others you'd say, that doesn't float my boat. Big deal. It's important to you. It means nothing to me. You'd see those things that you would expect. Then you'd see some unusual things. You'd see a container full of dirt from a trip to the Solomon Islands. You'd see some rocks that mean nothing to you, but they mean things to me because they represent milestones. 
There would be kind of unusual things, and you'd think, my pastor's gone out of his mind with these weird things that he has on his desk. And you'd see books about this topic or that topic. Of course, those are things that you'd expect. But then you would see on the wall a very unique thing, a one-of-a-kind framed photograph of a man whom I consider to be one of the greatest communicators that we've had to see in at least a couple of generations. It's a signed autographed picture personally given to Janet and to me from a master communicator by the name of Zig Ziglar. A man I respect tremendously, Zig Ziglar, the father of motivational, inspirational speaking, and for good reason, one of the reasons why I love Ziglar, one of the reasons why I love him, is because he wasn't afraid to give credit where credit was due, and where credit is still due, in referencing the Bible, and saying that one of the reasons why he became such a success is because he decided to build his life upon the teachings found in God's word, the Bible. You know, one of the things that Zig Ziglar said is something that you and I can remember and take to heart as it pertains to Luke 22 in verse 2. Look with me. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him, Jesus, to death, for they feared the people. It was Zig Ziglar who defined fear. One of those two destructive devastating motivators in the course of our life, fear. Ziegler defined fear as false evidence appearing real. I think that's a great definition of fear, and you should too. By the time we're done, you'll understand. Fear is false evidence appearing real. There are two major destructive forces, two major motivating factors in all of life. One wreaks havoc, the other one builds beauty. The one that wreaks havoc is fear. False evidence appearing real. Look with me. The chief priests and the scribes, verse two, were seeking how to put him, Jesus, to death for they feared the people. Now look with me at 1 John chapter 4, verse 18. The Bible talks about fear. 1 John chapter 4, verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Now this is an irony of ironies, a hypocrisy of hypocrisies that the chief priests, look at this, the chief priests and the scribes, are fear-filled. They're fearful of the people. And that's why they wanted to have Jesus put to death. They are filled with fear. We know that Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16, says that Jesus is the great high priest. We know that John says in John's gospel, chapter one, that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word became flesh and lived among us for a while. The irony of ironies is that the chief priests and the scribes were opposing the high priest and the writer of scripture, Jesus. We can get into all these debates. Did Moses write the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament? Did this writer write this scripture or that writer? And people can debate this and that. At the end of the day, the truth is that God Almighty wrote the scriptures. 
And the irony is that the chief priests and the scribes were opposing the great high priest and the author of scripture. And the hypocrisy here is that these guys who were studying the scriptures, familiar with the scriptures for the purpose of leading the Jewish people to the Messiah, did not recognize him themselves when they should have. In the same way that all of the Old Testament feasts, all of the Old Testament festivals, all of the Old Testament sacrifices are there by design to point people to Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus as the Savior. So the chief priests and the scribes, their existence, they were called by Almighty God for this singular purpose, not just to have Scripture memorized, not just to make sure that every letter of the Old Testament was accurately recorded, accurately transcribed. That's not the purpose of a scribe. That's not the purpose of a chief priest. Their purpose was to teach the word of God and to preach the word of God in ways that led people to the presence of the Messiah when he arrived. Something happened. Something happened on the way to the temple. Something happened on their way to ministering before Almighty God where that purpose became clouded. And F-E-A-R, false evidence appearing real, succumbed and overtook what should have been the motivator in their lives. They began to be concerned about the opinions of people. And they feared the people instead of reverencing and respecting, the Bible says, fearing God. That's what it means to fear God, to reverence him, to respect him, to honor him. Look with me at Romans 14, 23. Remember, there are two motivators in all of life. One wreaks havoc, fear. The other builds beauty. Here's the one that builds beauty, Romans 14, 23. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. This is the context of Paul talking about food that's sacrificed to idols. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Look at that. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. There's the other motivating factor. In your life and in mine, either we will be motivated by fear, false evidence appearing real, we'll get there in just a moment, or we'll be motivated by faith. There's a really succinct, really brief definition for us to understand, well, what is sin? If you do it and you're doing it out of anything except faith, it's sin. Now see, many of us, can readily understand and appreciate that pride is bad. Unless, of course, you're talking about having pride in your children or pride in your spouse, that type of a thing, pride in a friend. You know, there's an appropriate time when it's good to have pride, a humble kind of pride. But there is a kind of pride that is always diabolical, always devilish, always destructive, always dastardly, and it is the kind of pride that the devil was guilty of 
The kind of pride that I am guilty of, the kind of pride that you are guilty of every single time we sin. Every single time we sin, it can always, not some of the time, always be traced back to the root of pride. Well, we talk about it in that high-level way. I just can't get my head wrapped around that. I just can't understand what, yeah, pride is bad. Let's move on. What is pride? Pride manifests itself in one of two ways all the time. Pride manifests itself in one of two ways all the time. The first way is through the sin of self-protection. The sin of self-protection, where we care about what people think about us. We care about how we feel about ourselves, what people think about us there the way that we are perceived by other people, the way people might think about us and how we feel as a result of what people might say to us, the sin of self-protection. One of the ways that pride is manifest. Another way that pride is manifest is through the sin of self-glorification. And it doesn't get any more complicated than that That's the simplicity of understanding how pride is manifest. And all sin, all sin, things that we do that we shouldn't do, things that we don't do that we should do, whether it's a sin of commission, doing something, or it's a sin of omission, we didn't do something that we were supposed to do. All sin, all the time, under every circumstance, can be traced back to pride, which is, by definition, Sins of self-glorification and self-protection. So when we look at it that way, when we understand it that way, we understand that a lot of us have left our marriages because we're more concerned about how we are perceived. We're more concerned about how we feel. We're more concerned about our own reputation than the reputation of Jesus Christ. Just like the chief priests, just like the scribes, they feared the people. It is false evidence appearing real. People's opinion of you, people's opinion of me really doesn't matter. The only thing that really matters is the truth that God knows to be true in sincerity and truth. So many of us, we've left a marriage. And I don't, I don't notice I didn't say the word divorce. We're still married, but we've checked out emotionally. We're emotionally distant. We cannot use the six important words in every relationship that are characteristic of a person who is not being dominated by fear. The six words, I am sorry, please forgive me. I am sorry, please forgive me. There are people who have left checked out of relationships because they will refuse to put to death the sin of self-protection. We care more about how we feel than the other person feels. We care more about how we look and our reputation than the reputation of somebody else, the reputation of Jesus Christ. And so we will not, maybe we'll go this far, we'll say three of those six words, I am sorry. But you know, it's possible to say I am sorry 
not because you really take ownership for what you did, but because you got caught. When you're committed to sincerity and truth, those six words, that simple sentence that you mean from the heart, putting aside the old leaven, because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, those six words become part of your regular vocabulary. I am sorry. Please forgive me. That's when you take ownership. That's when you realize I was interested in self-glorification more than the glory of God. I was interested in self-protection more than the agenda and the glory of God being manifest. You know, people leave churches for the same reason. I'm not so sure. In all of our surety in the evangelical community, I'm not so sure that we would have really loved Jesus if we were back in the first century, the way we now look back and say, oh, we love Jesus. Because Jesus had a way of when he spoke the truth and love of doing this. Jesus had a way of stepping on toes. He was not beholden to anybody. He was not given to anybody's reputation except the reputation of his father. And so he said the truth, spoke the truth. And today, we get upset. We do what Balaam did by beating his donkey. If, Lord forbid we should hear God through a message. Lord forbid we should hear God through a worship song. And instead of saying, God is speaking to me, we say, how dare the elder of the church say that? How dare the pastor of the church say that? How dare the song leader sing that song when we don't understand what's happening, the sin of self-protection, the sin of self-glorification, the sin of pride is dominating False evidence appearing real, as if your opinion and mine really matters. It's false evidence appearing real. It is destructive. Fear is destructive. It has to do with judgment. Scribes, chief priests, losing their popularity with the people. And so out of fear, they went into stealth mode. Can't do this in front of all the people. Got to act in underhanded ways. Doesn't matter that we're contradicting the law that we're supposed to be teaching. We're supposed to be all about the law and even the letter of the law. Doesn't matter. We'll fudge here. We'll fudge there. People leave churches. People get upset in churches for no other reason because our feelings get hurt. Our feelings get hurt. And instead of asking God, instead of asking God, God, what are you saying through me? You allow false evidence appearing real to dominate and to squelch out a life of faith. See, that's what happens. It is not what a pastor says. It's not what an author writes or a worship leader sings. 
The real issue is what is God saying to you in your life, no matter who the messenger is? I want, as a follower of Jesus, to know in sincerity and in truth, I want to know what God is saying to me. That's what characterizes Someone who realizes that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Let us keep the festival. Let us live lives that are worthy of the ultimate sacrifice that was paid. Get over the tizzy. Get through the cloud and get to the Shekinah where God Almighty is trying to speak to your life. God Almighty is trying to speak to your family. God Almighty is trying to speak to our nation. He is. You've got to understand, I've got to understand, we've always got to understand there are two major motivators in our lives. One wreaks havoc, fear, false evidence appearing real. The other one builds beauty, faith. Whatever doesn't come from faith is sin. And the decision that you make on a day-to-day basis, on a moment-by-moment basis on whether or not you'll let fear dominate or whether or not you'll let faith dominate will determine the quality of your life, the glory of God or the hindrance of God's glory. Two major motivators in life, fear and faith. You have a say, I have a say, we have a say in which will dominate and which will be demolished. It's a moment by moment, every day, day after day decision. And the chief priests and the scribes teach us about the devastating impact of fear when they were operating out of concern for people whose opinions in the final analysis really didn't matter. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit couragematters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. Interested in requesting Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking. Mm-hmm.